Thank you for listening to our podcast, Carefully Examining the Text. And today is our second podcast on Psalm 82. If you haven't listened to part one, which was largely an explanation of some things in verse one, then I encourage you to go back and listen to that. But thank you for listening right now, for so many of you are so faithful to listen. And I hope that these are helping you understand the Word better, understanding God better, and understanding our relationship with Him better. Psalm 82 is described as a psalm of Asaph. Last time we talked about verse 1, God takes his stand in his own congregation, or in the congregation of El, the congregation of God. And he judges in the midst of the judges, or the gods, or the Elohim, the Hebrew word is. We talked about this verse in detail in the different worldviews that go behind that second word, or last word in the text translated God in some of your versions. What does Psalm 82, or who does Psalm 82 address as God? We'll invoke some of that discussion later. One thing that may catch your attention is the judge is pictured as standing in the midst of the congregation. Usually judges in the Old Testament are pictured as sitting. For example, in Daniel 7 in verses 9 and 10. However, there are times when God is said to arise to judge in Isaiah 3 in verse 13, for example. Also, you remember that Joseph was standing, his sheaf was standing erect, and his brothers bowed down to him in Genesis 37, verses 5 through 8. Maybe it's the same type of picture. Whoever these gods are in whose midst the Lord judges, in whose midst God judges, God is superior to them. It is as if they are bowing down to him and he is standing. And the words with which he rebukes these judges are in verses 2 through 4. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Silah. Vindicate the weak and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and destitute. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. Often in the Psalms, the question, how long, is addressed to God. How long, O Lord? When a person finds their circumstances difficult to endure, how long? But here, it is God who is asking the question, how long? How long? Will you judge unjustly? When will you cease your wickedness and ungodliness? And God does ask this question, how long? Several times in the whole context of Scripture. But how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality? Lift up your face and lift up the face of the wicked. How long will you do this? In verses 3 and 4, 
the sentences began, the phrases, I should say, began with four imperatives. In the New American Standard, vindicate, do justice, rescue, and deliver. Vindicate, do justice, rescue, and deliver in the New American Standard are all imperatives. The word vindicate, by the way, is the same word translated judge in verse 1 and in verse 2. But four different imperatives telling these judges what they should have done or should be doing. There are also six terms that describe those who should be the objects of their mercy. In the New American Standard, the weak and the fatherless, the afflicted and the destitute, the weak and the needy. So four imperatives, six passages, six words that describe the objects of their mercy. And these judges should have shown mercy to the weak, to the helpless, to the defenseless, to those who could not stand on their own. They are special objects of his mercy, while at the same time, in verse 4, he delivers them out of the hand of those who are wicked. So, what we see in this particular passage are the same kind of statements that are often made in the Old Testament telling human judges as to how they are to judge, and also the failure to perform these responsibilities uh, is something that's common in the Old Testament. The Old Testament commonly rebukes these judges who failed to carry out justice and righteousness as they should have properly. Verse 5 says, They do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness, and all the foundations of the earth are shaken. Now, most believe that this is a reference to the judges who are unjust, who are judging unjustly in verses 2 through 4. They do not know, nor do they understand. As Exodus 23 verse 8 says, a bribe blinds the eyes of judges. A bribe makes them blind. And here, these judges don't know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. However, there are some writers, and this is understandable, who believe that verse 5 is a reference to the victims of these unjust judges. The weak and fatherless, the afflicted and destitute, who were not rescued, who were not delivered, who were oppressed... Because of the judge's decision, they walk about in greater darkness and confusion, and their world is turned upside down. Maybe it's a reference to the victims of injustice. But in verse 6, I said, you are gods. We have stated often in this program that in the Hebrew language, within the verb, the subject often appears. If there is a separate personal pronoun that indicates the subject, it is being emphasized. And here the text says, I, 
I said. There's a separate personal pronoun, I, and there's a separate personal pronoun, you. I, I said, you, you are God's. And all of you, sons of the Most High, nevertheless, you will die like men and fall like any one of the princes. Now, this passage is at the crux of the debate that we discussed last week when we were talking about the identity of the gods in whose midst the true God judges in verse 1. One problem with taking verse 6 as a reference to pagan deities is that it seems as if God is affirming their reality. I said, you are gods. And that just doesn't seem to me to fit the biblical picture of, of idolatry and monotheism, where the Bible calls us to worship one God and to serve one God. I, I said, you, you are God's. Could this be a reference to the angels or spirits who, because of their sin, are judged and forced to die? You remember the Bible talks about hell being prepared for the devil and his angels in Matthew 25 and verse 41. 2 Peter 2.4 talks about how judgment, the wicked angels have been cast down to judgment. Jude 6 also deals with this particular subject. So is this a reference to them? Some think that this passage eliminates the possibility that this could be human judges. But let me ask this question. Can human judges become so full of pride, so full of arrogance, that they forget that they're going to die? Ezekiel 28 is addressed to the leader of Tyre. Ezekiel 28, verse 2. The leader of Tyre comes to think of himself as a god, as you see in Ezekiel 28, verse 2. In verse 6 and in verses 8 and 9. Yet the king of Tyre, the leader of Tyre, who has put himself in the place of God, is told that he is going to die like men. In verse 8 and in verse 9, in verse 10, he will die the death of the uncircumcised. All references from Ezekiel 28. In Isaiah 14, the king of Babylon is taunted and mocked for the one who calls such suffering on earth is finally brought down to Sheol and all those in Sheol will come to greet her thinking that she had been above this. But no, in the end, the king of Babylon is brought down to Sheol as well. Yes, sometimes human leaders can become so proud and arrogant that they can forget their mortality and they can forget their accountability to God. Verse 8, Arise, O God, judge the earth. This particular term has been used of God. Uh, this particular word has been used calling God to arise from Psalm 3, verse 7, 
Psalm 7, verse 6, and they have a whole host of other references. So there are all kinds of references that you could look at that call God to arise. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for it is you. The personal pronoun is separate because the word you is being emphasized. It is you who possess all the earth. Satan may be described as God of this world in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4. The Bible may say the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, 1 John 5 and verse 19. But that means that the devil has swayed many people in the world to follow him. It does not mean he is ultimately in control. Arise, O God, judge the earth. It is you who possess all the nations. The passage is a rebuke of these unjust judges who have corrupted the world and shaken the foundations of the earth, who thought themselves more than man. And God is called to arise and set matters straight. Many of you know that this passage is quoted in John 10, verse 34. Let's say a little of the context of John 10. In John 10, verse 30, Jesus said, I and my Father are one. I and my Father are one. In verse 31, the Jews pick up stones to stone him. Stoning was the penalty in the law for blasphemy in Leviticus 24 and verse 16. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones to stone him. Jesus ironically says in verse 32, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? In verse 33, they said, we're not stoning you for a good work, but for blasphemy. Because you being a man, make yourself out to be God. Jesus answered, has it not been written in your law that you are God's? Your law is a way he speaks of the Old Testament sometimes. He did this in John 8, 17. He does this in John 15, 25. And it's done here. Is it not been written in your law, I said you are God's? This is a quote from Psalm 82, verse 6, the only time Psalm 82 is quoted in the New Testament. Jesus continues the argument in verse 35. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken. Now, these people addressed were spoken of as gods. Whether they be angels or spirits, whether they be human leaders, they are addressed as gods. If they're addressed as gods and the scripture can't be broken, the scripture is of abiding authority. If that is the case, then in verse 36, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you're blaspheming because you said, I am the Son of God. Notice in verse 33, they had accused Jesus of making himself to be God. Jesus said the Father sanctified him and sent him into the world. 
Throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus shows that he can do nothing of his own initiative. When he was accused of making himself God in John 5.18, he makes that statement. And then he goes on to state how the Father has committed all judgment to him. And the Father has determined that all should honor the Son even as they honor the Father. Jesus uses this passage to show you can't charge me with blasphemy by speaking of myself as the Son of God when the Father sanctified me and sent me into the world in light of the fact that those who heard the word are addressed as gods in Psalm 82 and verse 6. That may not have answered all your questions. And what I'm about to suggest may not either. But for some of you who are really fascinated with this subject, I have typed up some 12 or 13 pages of notes upon the subject. And if you write me on my messenger on Facebook, I will, Lord willing, send those notes out to you at your email address, if you will include your email address. And we'll try to send those to you. How does Jesus fulfill the words of Psalm 82? Well, just as God judges in verse 1, Jesus, all judgment is committed to him. And as verses 2 through 4 rebuke these judges because they have not vindicated the weak and fatherless, in a prophecy in Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 5, these are the exact kind of people that the shoot from Jesse is going to vindicate, is going to do justice for. In verses 3 and 4, and its description of those who are objects of mercy, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the main Greek translation of the Old Testament, uses the term poor, which is used in Matthew 5, verse 3, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew 11, verse 5, the gospel is preached to the poor. And in Luke 4, verse 18, Luke 6 and verse 20, the point is that Jesus' ministry focuses on these very ones that these unjust judges are rebuked for not helping. And in verses 4 and 5, a couple of those imperatives that are used to describe how judges should rescue and deliver, those imperatives are used to describe those words used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament are used to describe the works of Jesus. He rescues us from this present evil world, Galatians 1 verse 14, and he also delivers us from the domain of darkness and transfers us to the kingdom of his beloved son, Colossians 1 and verse 13. And even though Jesus was God in a sense that those addressed in Psalm 82 could not imagine, he will die like men, but he will arise. 
he will arise, as verse 8 says, arise, O God. And again, the word used in the Greek translation for arise is often used to describe the resurrection of Jesus, particularly in the Gospel of Mark, Mark 8, 31, Mark 9, 9, Mark 9, 10, Mark 9, 31, Mark 10, 34. And when Jesus died, and when Jesus raised, the foundations of the earth shook. This is not a vocabulary link, but it is a conceptual link. In Matthew 27, Matthew 27 and 51, the Bible tells us when Christ died, the earth shook and the rocks were split. In Matthew 28, in verses 1 and 2, a severe earthquake occurred when the angel descended and rolled away the stone. The point that I'm making, Jesus shook the foundation of the world in a positive way. He turned the world upside down.